0: it's the last Thursday in August I'm smiling because at least the Yankees vindicated themselves having been swept at Shea they come back win two in the Bronx that's the good news the other good news is this is Market Call I'm Guy Adami joined as always by Dan Nathan and Wednesdays would be oh did I say Thursday I'm it's Wednesday what's well, the last <laughs> Wednesday of the month too I think yeah. maybe it's yeah. not I don't freaking know but it doesn't matter because Tom sasnov founder and CEO of Tasty Trade is waiting in the wings. And then Carter Braxton Worth of Worth Charting will be joining us. I'm all hyped up on something I can't tell you. Today's episode brought to you by our sponsors, FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by Tomorrow. Tasty Trade, empowering the individual investor through content, technology, and know-how. We're powered by Open Exchange. There's another Wednesday in the month. I'm screwing this whole intro, but I don't care because I'm looking at Dan Nathan And he looks like Madeline Kahn from Young Frankenstein. Hi, oh, there you
1: go. I see what you're doing there. You know, again, guy, I'm going to have a haircut today. We'll see how it all shakes out. Maybe I'll have less of that sort of, I don't know, what do you call it, a zebra stripe or something like that. But also, dude, I mean, listen, I'm very happy. I know you've been simping, as our friend would say, for the Yankees, you know, and I know that you don't really love to simp until September for Yankee baseball, but we're almost there. The fact that they went to, as you call it, to Shea, it wasn't Shea and lost two last month, but now they won two in the Bronx, and they can actually sweep three would be remarkable, wouldn't it, guys?
0: Well, except they don't play three. It's an off day today here. We call this a travel day in baseball. The Yankees are off to a West Coast trip in Oakland. The Colorado Rockies coming into Flushing. There has never been a more well-named city than Flushing, Queens, by the way. But again, yeah. I digress. You um, want to flush then, it. All right, let's you, do it. You let, look let. the hair going, Dan. You look I, I good. It. It's, I know, by well, the way, you, I want to give got a shout-out to Tom on. Sweeney. Oh, so yeah. listen, to, for you, I don't know if you're a lawyer out there in the Philadelphia area. Tom Sweeney's one of the great lawyers in that area of the country, probably in the country, who still manages to find the time to yeah. watch everything we do. Well, guy,
1: are we doing local ads now? Because, you know, we got the corner store down the street. They've been supplying me with uh, Mountain Dew for a
0: week. All right, P, let's let's go. Let's get Wait, into it.
1: But real quickly, real quickly, what's going on under your left eye here? Like, I'm trying to look in. I haven't seen you in a couple of days Yeah, Let's yeah. zoom in a, in a little bit. A, what a, happened? And yeah. how's the other guy look?
0: What I'll tell you is, and Tom Sazenoff probably knows this. I guarantee Carter doesn't because, you know, Carter is a lover, not a fighter. But the story is never as good as yeah. sort of the buildup. I will tell you. I mean, I'd love to be able to say, yeah, I was at a bar the other day. Some guy was a jerk to my wife, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And I jacked his ass up. That's not what happened. Quite frankly, what happened is I was trying to build a chaise lounge on yeah. Saturday and the top swung open and struck me oh, under the left eye. Sounds horrible.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, just beware of any rakes lying around in your yard after doing that. All right. Let's, let's talk about this guy because, you know, last week Carter came on. He drew some lines on that S&P chart. He said these are very important lines. The S&P mm-hmm. 500 got rejected at that downtrend to the penny, the 200-day. He doesn't like the 200-day, but we're just going to use it because it lined up pretty nicely. We had a 4% decline here, and, you know, it, it's like mon- Friday into Monday where a couple Of ugly days. Okay. The last two days, equities are kind of holding on for dear life at a time where the 10 year U.S. Treasury is at 3.11. Guy, we haven't seen it there in a while, right? We thought getting back above three was kind of important here. We've seen crude oil now, you know, have a nice little move. You're seeing a lot of houses call, you know, they see 100 in the not so distant future. We're going to hit that with Carter in a little bit. Thoughts on how equities are acting right now? I see Apple and Microsoft. $5.5 $5.5 trillion in market cap, just unchanged here. So goes the market if those things turn lower?
0: Yeah, I think for a lot of people today, you're hoping you get this bounce. I'll tell you, and I'm not trying to be too hyperbolic here, but if the market were to roll over and go negative again, we were negative earlier, that's not a particularly good sign given the three and a half days or so of sell-offs that we've seen. So keep an eye, obviously, on the s and I will tell you, Dan, keep an eye on the LQD and the HYG. If they roll over and go negative today, I think that augurs something not particularly, let's put it this way, it doesn't augur particularly well for the broader market going forward. So today I think it's a really interesting, critical day because if the market can't hold the gains, having seen the sell-offs we've seen over the last couple of sessions, that's not particularly good
1: yeah real quickly on that chart that's right next to you there guy we see the red line that was the downtrend carter drew it last week the 200-day moving average but that really steep uptrend there we broke that below that i mean again you know you and i think we could see 4,000 in and not so distant future Mm -hmm. but depending upon what the fed has to say or what comes out of they're not going to be saying anything officially what comes out of jackson hole i mean obviously that's going to determine you know how this market breaks here the vix we've been looking at a little bit here you know it been in kind of making a series of higher lows since that November low. That's when the volatility in equities really started the major indices. That was when the Fed pivoted right in mid to late november here well we got below that uptrend and again i'm not a huge charter of the vix here but you know if we look at a lot of charts here this one is a significant gap above it if we hold above that and we keep moving higher that's probably how you get the s&p back below 4000
0: yeah agreed and listen we should bring in tom cuz he has some pretty strong views but again nobody is suggesting you should trade the vix but it's definitely something to watch in terms of where you know, just what the taking the temperature of the market and what people sort of appetite for risk is, and that's one of the reasons we bring it up all the time. And I would submit, you know, that the VIX that you know, as a teenager, was too cheap. Other people yeah. say, you know, what historically it's probably still too expensive, but as they say, that's what makes markets. Can we bring Tom in because I mentioned what a study was earlier? He's probably a fighter, not a lover. How are you, Tom? I'm definitely not a fighter. <laughs> you just said that. I mean, well, I mean, you know, you're, uh, but, but you're, I will tell you what you are. You're cerebral. You look at things differently than most people. And I think that's what helps us here on Wednesdays. So I thought it was Thursday. I mes- messed up. But thanks for joining us as always. Thanks. Thanks for having me, guys. All right, let's do it. All right, let's let that Tom again, you've made it
1: very clear over the last few weeks. You don't really care or don't have a good sense of what the Fed is going to do or say at any given moment. And again, you know, maybe it has more to do with just the 10-year US Treasury yield, which topped out what a little more than, you know, close to two months ago at three and a half percent, went all the way down. It felt like in a straight line to two and a half percent. And now for whatever reason, you know, you've been trading. Talk to us a little bit about these psychologically round numbers, right? Like a three percent level. Here we are at 3.1%. Are you drawing like conclusions about what bonds and yields are doing relative to equities right now? Yeah. I mean, is that a yeah. good yeah, talk to us about that.
2: Okay, so it's a good point here because I've been making this case as of late. I thought the bond rally from the low 130s when they and I'm talking about the long bond because everything yeah. else basically everything else trades off the long bond. You could do the use the 10 year, it doesn't matter. But the bonds rallied from 133 area after the Fed raised you know, 75 basis points the first time, all the way up to 146 after the second race. It was an incredible rally. You know, ridiculous. Almost just under 10. percent I mean, just a nutty rally in the long bond, more than we've seen in almost you know multiple years. But I thought the chance of the bonds getting back down from the 145, 146 level down to 140 was really. I mean, statistically, if you looked at the implied volatility, there statistical chance was about 5%. So you're talking about a two standard deviation move. In reality, they've dropped all the way to 135, which is we're basically in three and a half standard deviation territory for that period of time, which means it's not something that's even quantifiable or measurable, Mm -hmm. what's happened to the bonds in the last, you know, let's call it the last month. Because of that, and I think the Fed is irrelevant at this point, because I think that the Fed has no choice but to... Follow the pattern of the bond market. The bond market was making it really easy on the Fed because they could raise rates without having any risk whatsoever because the bond market was doing the exact opposite. So it's taking all the pressure off them. Now the Fed's hands are tied again because the drop in the bond market, which means higher interest rates, you know, their inverse prices are inverse to rates. The drop in the bond market has really tied the Fed's hands right now because. Mm-hmm you know, all that talk of potentially, you know, not raising again, or, you know, even lowering because of what the real market was doing. I think that's out the window at least right this second. So I think that puts a lot more pressure on the Fed to catch up to what the actual bond market's doing. And I also think it puts a little pressure on the stock market because the stock market, people didn't expect the stock market to go from 4,300 plus back down to let's say 4,100. And I kind of agree with you guys and think it has a really good chance of surprising to the downside mm-hmm. and surprising it potentially under that 4,000 level, mm-hmm. just because the bonds went so far beyond where they were supposed to go. that I think this market just goes to extremes. So for me to see S&Ps, to see the, the S&P drop under 4,000 really wouldn't be much of a surprise given what the bond market is doing. If the bond market had held at 140, instead of dropping to 135, and we're in the 135 handle today in bonds, then I would have said, you know what, I think stocks are good here. But now it makes me a little more nervous.
0: Listen, I agree with everything you're saying. And we're going to part ways at a certain point in terms of what I think it means for equity volatility, but bond volatility is at historic levels. You just basically, you talked about it in the last month, look at the last six to nine months. It's ridiculous, the moves that we've seen. I would submit this move north of 3% in 10-year is not because the economy is getting better magically. I mean, quite the opposite. It's because inflation is still a problem. So to your point, this sort of ties the Fed's hands. And you know we'll see how it plays out. I guess the good news, if there is good news in this, is that the yield curve is flattening to a certain extent. I think we traded up to almost 50 basis points inversion. We're probably around 22 basis points now. So if you're looking for a silver lining, it comes in that fashion. But To your point, Tom, you know this move in the bond market is something I think people should watch a lot more close.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's really hard for most individual investors, guy, to trade the yield curve. We we talk about it constantly, you know, on our network, and and only because I think it's one of the best trades on the board. And the yield curve's been steepening nicely the last, let's call it the last you know week week or so. It's had it maybe the last two weeks. It's had a really nice it's had a really nice run to the upside, which it hasn't had in like what feels like years. But there's a lot of ways for retail, because I know most of the people watching this podcast are retail investors. And if they're not, even for professionals, it's actually a really easy trade to make because you can buy twos, which are ZTs, and you can sell tens, which are ZNs. And you can do that any ratio you want. I like to do it on two to one, buy two twos and sell one ten. Or if you prefer the longer term, you can buy Two tens, which are the ZNs, and sell one ZB. Those are all the trades that you just discussed. And any retail customer can do that at virtually any brokerage firm. I mean, you can't do it at certain firms that don't support futures, but every firm that supports futures, these are multi trillion dollar products. And so there's no liquidity issues. There's no risk issues outside of, you know, just obviously whatever happens to the market. And anybody can trade the yield curve by right? buying twos selling 10s or buying 10s and selling 30s. Yeah. And so I really like that trade. And if you don't have it on, if anybody doesn't have it on, I think you're missing something because I think it's, a, it's an interesting trade that's at a price extreme.
1: Well, listen, you know what? I mean, we check out what you guys are doing, you and Bats, in the mornings there. And I we recommend that our users check out you guys on Tasty Trade and, and kind of get a better sense of how you're executing those trades, how you're risk managing them. Here's one that, Tom, we really wanted to hit you on here because This is, you know, when we speak to like different audiences, you know, we get a lot of questions about, you know, things like stock splits, you know, so Tesla's got this split. It's a three for one, you know, earlier in the summer before they declared it, it it goes X tomorrow. Okay. So on the 25th here, a lot of investors were hoping when the stock was, I don't know, 850 or 900, it was going to be a greater split. So talk to us a little bit how you think of the psychology. I know you've been talking about this for with retail for years and years and years, all the excitement about Stock splits. You know, it's just to us. I mean, Guy and I have been talking about it in Fast Money. It seems like forever. There's nothing fundamental, right, whatsoever about a split, but there's always excitement about it. And I do believe it's one of the reasons why Tesla's hanging in here right now. I don't really see a whole host of other reasons. Talk to us a little bit how you think about it, how you speak to retail investors about it, and how you trade them. Do you take well, the other side? I've been incredibly vocal over the last couple of years about stocks not splitting because
2: it pisses me off when you have like a $3,000 Amazon or a $2,000 Google or even a $1,000 Tesla because individual investors, I mean, I don't care who you are, the average retail size account, let's just call it that, that's actively trades, is 40 or $50,000. And if you have a $3,000 account, 100 shares is $300,000, fully margin it's 150. So it's actually the, these companies have refused to split over the years because they're just greedy and they want control. They don't want a dilution to their they don't want a dilution to their shareholder base, to their voting. And they have been very reluctant just to make sure that the stock stays in the hands of a few institutions. So it reduces volatility. It doesn't make it as tradable, all this kind of stuff. So I've been an advocate for shares splitting in virtually anything. I just like things that are cheaper so they're tradable, the $100 range, the $200 range, whatever it is. If you've noticed, since Amazon and Google split and even Shopify split, all the volumes in there have gone up like tenfold, almost tenfold. It's crazy. And so what's happened is everything's become tradable. I love, I mean, Tesla's been a little more aggressive throughout the years with respect to splitting. So for Tesla, this is a little more normal. But I think when Tesla splits, it's already the most Actively traded, or the best markets of any equity that there's options trading on. So I think Tesla is going to become far and away the best trading vehicle after it splits. Instead of being a nine hundred dollar stock, it's going to be a three hundred dollar stock, which makes it much more attractive. hundred shares is thirty thousand dollars, and when you're trading options on it, you know a naked option will be six thousand dollars instead of being sixty thousand mm-hmm. dollars. So I think that we're talking about you know from a tradability standpoint, nothing else. Just liquidity, capital efficiency, and tradability, these splits are really necessary for retail investors to participate in the markets. You want more retail participation? You split the stocks. And I think it's about time that these companies, for all the wrong reasons, by the way, you know, they're splitting stocks because they think it's going to boost their stock price. They're not splitting stocks because they're thinking they're helping the retail investors, but they are
0: yeah that's an interesting take. I mean they're clearly doing it. I, it but to your point though, I guess it doesn't matter the reasons why you're right I mean, it doesn't that's matter. ancillary i, don't care. I mean right. the the byproduct is the same, and to your point, listen, we say it all the time. you know if you have a if a two slices of pizza, if you cut them into in half, you still have the same amount of pizza and that's the same thing here yeah. with stocks. but to your point, it gives the ability to trade options around them increases to your point almost tenfold just the ability to trade around the stocks increases, to your point, tenfold. So I guess on the margins, you can understand why a stock split would be positive for these companies. So listen, I understand the reasons why a lot better. And I will tell you, I think you would agree with this as well, Tom, the advent of options trading over the last specifically three or four years. I mean, this probably was not nearly as true a decade ago as it is now vis-a-vis options world.
2: You're right. And when you think about the number of people that can participate with these lower prices, I mean, you just bring tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people back into the fold, being able to trade, you know, both the equity and there's a reason that people don't trade equities anymore in general, that retail investors don't trade equities. And they've all gravitated towards options, futures and futures options. And the simple thing is because these stocks are too expensive can't afford them. And nobody wants to buy the stupid ass fractional, you know, fractional amounts of fractional shares. There's nothing you can do against it. That makes no sense to me. You want to be able to be a strategic capital efficient investor in 2022. There's no reason. Markets are too efficient for you to just think in terms that are not strategic. And so now this brings Tesla back into a level where, you know, virtually every single market participant can play it. I mean, if you're, if you're bullish in Tesla and you want to sell a put spread, you know, cause you think the stock's going higher, you know, you can do it for 150 bucks of risk. And if you want, if you're bearish, you can sell a, you know, you'd be able to sell a two and a half dollar, $5 wide call spread in there, you know, and put up, you know, 200 bucks and now, Hey, I'm trading Tesla now. So, I mean, it brings everybody into the game.
0: We got one of the most important companies, and this has really happened over the last five years as well. NVIDIA has just basically taken the world by storm, and they report Mm -hmm. today. We're going to throw a chart up. Just thoughts on NVIDIA. Dan obviously knows what the implied move is. I have some thoughts here where I think can go. How are you looking at NVIDIA? Are you trading NVIDIA?
2: Yes. So every single thing that I talk about with you guys, I'm trading it, and I have positions in it. So like, you know, the yield curve, Tesla and NVIDIA, the same thing. So NVIDIA, I am playing it for earnings and I am playing it longer term, but I'm basically just short premium in NVIDIA. Mm -hmm. My current position is in September, I'm short the 150 puts right now. I'm short the 150 puts and the 192 and a half calls. It's a very kind of neutral trade, maybe just a couple of short deltas, but I'm basically short a $42 and a half dollar wide strangle with September expiration the expected september move which is by the way we're 23 days out to september expiration and the september expected move is $18 in nvidia but the overnight move you know because remember it's wednesday so the by this friday the overnight move is just under $10 is the expected move
1: yeah. So, hey, Tom, so just to break that down, when you just said you are short a push, which would generally be bullish, and you're short a call, that would be bearish. But you right. just said, and this is for our viewers here, that when when they hear you say, so it's basically short some deltas, that means that you basically have some short exposure. The trade is not meant to be short, betting against no. the stock going down. The trade is meant for the implied volatility, the price of options that are elevated into this earnings for them to come in. That's how you make money. You don't have a move greater than that short call strike or a move greater to the downside of that short put strike. If it's within that, then both of those options are going to expire worthless if you held it to that point, and then you take in that premium, correct? Exactly. The stock is 172 right now,
2: and I am going home tonight with a position on where when the number comes out, I am rooting for it to be inside of $10, either way, up or down. I couldn't care less Mm -hmm. which direction, up or down. Yeah, Uh, Yeah, but Tom,
1: so let's talk about this really quickly because we live in a time right now where there's some outsized moves, right? If a company like NVIDIA, for fundamental reasons, guided down, missed, you know, people felt bad about it, there's a chance that it would be down a lot more than 10 bucks. The stock is at $172, right? And this is where you might line up some charts and you might see where the bodies are buried and this and that, whatever. How do you manage a trade like that? Let's just say hypothetically, you know, you have a move that is, you know, within, it's just blown through your short put or call strike. How are you managing it the next day? Well, one of the things, first of all, Dan, is that the good news in NVIDIA is
2: they've already... That damage of saying, hey, we're gonna miss or we're yeah. gonna we're gonna underperform. That's already out. That's yeah, the greenhouse revenues a couple of right. weeks ago, correct? Yeah. But the only way, and this is where I differ from most of the people in this industry because people will tell you, well, you know, I need to stop myself out at this support level, I need to stop myself out of this resistance level, all this kind of garbage. Yeah. I've been doing this for a long time. There's only one way to defend against an outlier move, and that is simply to stay small the only way you can defend yourself in this business, genius fails when you get too big. Yeah. If as long as you keep your position size into a reasonable number that you can afford and that you can deal with the risk on, you can never fail. You can get hurt, but you can never fail. And so the first thing to do is keep your position size small. That is the number one key. The second thing is, if I have a neutral position on tonight and the stock opens down more than the $10, let's say it opens down $20 tomorrow. The first thing I do, is I take my out of the money calls and I roll them down Uh to either neutralize or reduce the risk on the short put. Uh If the stock opens up, I do the exact opposite and roll the short puts up to the call side. And it's just, it's a very simple mechanism of rolling the untested side down towards your tested strike. And that's how we defend the position. But you have to start with reasonable size. Otherwise, you'll get squeezed out. We do not use stop
1: orders under any circumstances.
0: So one thing before I'm sorry, Dan, go ahead. Yeah, and I just I
1: want to make one point, guy, and then I'll I'll let you back in here. So so it's interesting what you said about, you know, how you set stops and where you do it and and and, and mental stops. Okay. They're, like they're all, instance,
2: they're all mental. Right. They're, they're all, all mental.
1: mental. Okay. And that's really important. So I just want to give you a quick update on something you and I two weeks ago we talked about I you were long Robin Hood H-O-O-D. Yes. I bought some Robin Hood. I sent a mental stop in my head. I thought it was kind of a one down, two or three up or so. This is the chart since it's IPO. Okay. You see that it obviously gotten bludgeoned and it's kind of been in that uptrend. You see the little trend. Look at the six month chart here. What I said to myself on the chart is that if it breaks the uptrend, if you look at the shorter term chart here, then I'm going to sell. And it broke the uptrend and I sold. The stock is still on my radar here, but let's see how it acts in and around that level. So I just kind of wanted to give a, a quick update, yeah. but it also ties in a little bit to how I think about using mental stops.
2: Right. See, I don't, we call that like an engagement tool and mm-hmm. that makes you comfortable. So I have no issue with that. Like I don't, I don't trade that way. I will give you a little bit of, of research that we've done with respect to mental stops in general. Mm-hmm. And the way to look at mental stops, if you want the optimal number is if you're selling something and I'm not talking about stock, right. I'm just talking about optimal number with respect to premium. If you're selling something for, let's say, a dollar, your optimal stop point is 200%. So your optimal stop point, if it was mental, would be $3. If you're selling something for $5, your optimal stop would be $15. If you're looking for the number that is statistically most relevant, meaning gives you the best Stopping point, but like you said, if you're buying long stock, it's completely subjective. And in the case of your Robinhood trade, listen, you made you made the call. You decided what you're willing to risk, what you're willing to lose, and when it got past that number, you got out. I mean, you know, Robinhood traded eleven and a half. Then it traded back into the eight handle. Yeah, you know, it's it's pretty volatile stock.
0: Tom, before we let you go, real quick, just so people understand, selling a put as you know, you could potentially be put that stock and become long that stock. I think my sense is. In terms of this NVIDIA or any other company, you're probably ambivalent. These become trading tools. So yeah. you're not looking to get long the stock necessarily at that level. Never. You at some point would probably just buy back that put at a loss or something like that. Can you speak to that real quick? Because sure. some sure. people think this is, you know, you're making basically a bullish... I would love to be long NVIDIA at 150, and that's not what this is about at all. No, it
2: is not. about. It's a great point, Guy, because people say that all the time. I'll sell this put because I don't mind buying the stock at this price. But when that stock gets that price, you do mind buying it there. Mm -hmm. So we don't ever sell options because we intend to buy the stock. I never sell puts with the intent of buying the stock. I sell puts with the intent to make money on my short put. I mean, it's very rare that we get put stock because most of the time we'll either buy the option back or we'll roll it to another month or we'll do something else against it. But the only time I will allow myself to be put stock is if it's like a case like Robinhood, where it's a $9 stock or it's a Peloton, where it's a $9 stock, you know, or it's Palantir or something, like some crappy $10 less stock. For the most part, if we're talking about $170 stock like, like Nvidia, there is no chance I'm taking delivery of that stock Mm -hmm. and I'm just trading it. And if I lose money because I sold puts and the stock went down, hey, so be it. Keep the size small and try to work around it.
0: Yeah, and I I knew, I pretty much knew that answer, but I wanted you to verbalize it so people could hear. Tom, as always, thanks for joining us on Wednesday. Good luck with everything today. We didn't get a chance to talk about energy with you. We will next week without question. Enjoy the rest of the afternoon. And definitely, Dan, you got to check out Tasty Trade, what they have going on. Literally, all day long. So if you love trading as much as Tom does, or even as half as much, this is a community you want to be a part of, Dan.
1: No doubt about it. And again, you know, we're going to we're getting a lot of great feedback from viewers, listeners. They love having, you know, an expert trader like him and someone who just does it all day and night. So we're going to try to break some of that stuff down and get inside baseball. All right, guy, it is time. You know, Carter has been so patient, but he's a patient guy. Isn't he kind of a patient guy? He's Like
0: waiting like in the Muppet show, those two old bastards that sat out in like the in the mezzanine there in the bleachers. there he is. Oh, he's not looking at him. You look at him.
3: You he know, looks like. Guys him. were good those old. He looks like I got a, a fire alarm going here, so we got everything going. Are you Both okay? Is everything okay? Are you
0: okay?
3: Oh yeah. Fire alarms just test themselves. There's very rarely fires.
0: Well, you know what tested itself? Will at this segue was the, the s p right up to that trend line, Carter? And my God, you couldn't have done better work. You heard what we were talking about, real quick, in terms of the market. Well, you drew the lines, as you say, the lines effectively drew themselves. It worked exactly how you laid it out. What are you looking at now?
3: So we broke trend, the minor trend off the low, and now the fight is on and my hunch is that the break in trend is the is the important thing that we basically work lower.
1: Yeah. So Carter, last week I think when we updated that, you said there's a, an unfilled gap back to like mid mid-June, right before that Fed meeting, maybe we yeah. see something to the tune of 3800. I listen, I, you know, it's hard, right? When you're trying to play this kind of move there was that counter trend move and now a lot of people are kind of coalescing around the idea where the where the market could come in we see rates what they're doing here but now man you know you're kind of on a hair trigger like yesterday i wanted to talk to tom about this when the spy was trading the s&p you know the etf that tracks it 414 i bought some of the weekly and those are kind of dangerous people the weekly 410 puts i just thought that 4100 was a level we were going to hit before we had this jackson hole thing kick off and maybe we saw another 3% or so but again if you're buying weekly puts, especially in indices like this, you better be quick because if you get the direction wrong, you know on either side of your strike, those things are going to evaporate a little quickly. So again, I'm playing for a move this week to four thousand. I'm going to look to cut them. All right, guys, your email box burned up yesterday from worth charting. What well, what did you see? And it was kind of like it was kind of like he was like Carter was like kind of living in your head a little bit,
0: huh? Well, it's what's going on in crude oil. And I got to tell you, again, both of you have done an outstanding job. And I, you know, we'll talk to Tom next week about crude as well. But you all were negative, and that played out. But over the last couple of days, I mean, there's been a change of direction, a pretty precipitous change. Yeah. And it happened yesterday in the equities when you saw those headlines out of OPEC. Those equities turned on a dime. And I'll tell you, it's just my opinion, Dan. The fundamental case for crude oil has not changed. What changed is the price. The fundamentals around it haven't changed. I think a lot of the sell-off we've seen is on this fear of a global slowdown, which I totally get. The problem with that argument is there's been zero demand destruction. We're still at pre-2019 levels in demand. And in terms of supply, we're not anywhere close to where we should be. So the supply-demand, fundamental setup, we've heard from a number of people. Halima Croft talked about it. Paul Sankey talked about it. So I will tell you, I think there's a leg higher here in crude oil, the commodity, Dan. All
1: right. Well, Carter, I just mentioned, you know, worth charting. I mean, you put it out there yesterday. You've been negative. You thought we'd kind of get a retest back to those November highs, right? And we did almost to the penny, as you would say here. So walk us through your thought process here and, you know, how you're thinking about playing it um, and where you think it could go, crude oil, in the near term.
3: Sure. So actually, this was a follow-up from last Wednesday. We Mm -hmm. put out a thing talking about oil and XLE and Mm saying, you know what, we're down to the rebound juncture. Let's get going on the long side. Now that the rebound is here, the only thing to look at, I think, is the trend line. And so we've just yesterday moved above the trend line in effect, short-term trend line since the 125 high. And so if you take that Write what you're looking at and put it on the longer term chart. You'll see the next iteration. It's not only that, and that was the point of the week ago call, not only were we down at that bounce juncture, now that we have bounced, we've moved above the downtrend line. So two very sort of important things. And you can keep going here, go further back. The point of that level and the point of the week ago judgment was that this is not only down to the highs of the autumn of 2021 but if you look at the next iteration it was at the middle of the formation that crude has been basically living in its entire two-year history until the ukraine war and we had that blow off top and we're simply back to midpoint so three things all coalescing three key levels and hence the judgment to play for bounce. and commodities in general are, are a bit better
0: I agree with that. I'm with you. And Dan, the way I would play it, and you've heard me say this, but the OIH has been extraordinarily volatile. Went from 175 up to 320, back to 245, which was support, back up to 310, cratered on the back of the commodity. Now we're catching a second wind here. I think this, if we look at a chart in OIH, I mean, to me, this is how you play it. The underlying components basically are three stocks. Baker Hughes, to a certain extent, but the two big ones, Schlumberger and Halliburton, both the fundamentals of those companies are better than they've been maybe in the history of the company. Balance sheets are better, they're operated better, and they're at extraordinarily reasonable valuations. And you can look at this chart. You know that uptrend line still intact. We broke through that prior support level to the upside with that horizontal line. And to me, I think with even just a benign tape in the broader market, with commodity going higher. I think the OIH can test those previous highs, not the all-time highs, but the previous highs we've seen over the last year or so, Dan.
1: Yeah, and I think that volatility is really kind of the opportunity here, especially if you're right on fundamentals and if Carter is correct on the technical setup with crude, I think that's a great way to play it. And you know, again, I don't have a position in this name just yet in the OIH, but I was looking at the options and here's a trade that I kind of liked here. So when the OIH, the ETF that, that tracks those services names was 248 bucks today, if you look out to October, Expiration. You could buy the October 260-300 call spread that would cost you about ten bucks. You'd be buying one of the October two sixty calls at about fourteen dollars, and then selling one of the October three hundred calls at about four bucks. Again, the max premium at risk is ten dollars. You have profits of up to thirty dollars between two seventy and three hundred, with a max gain of thirty dollars above three hundred. Losses of up to ten dollars between two sixty and two seventy, with a max loss of ten between. You know, below 260 there. So again, I like the risk reward of this trade. Again, it's been very volatile. You're risking about four percent of the ETF price. You have a break even up about eight percent, which seems like a lot. But again, this thing's been moving around, and then you have a max potential gain of about 12 percent of the ETF. It's if it's up about 20 percent in a little less than two months. So again, we always like to think about trade management here. I like to use mental stops. If this ETF were to turn lower, and I paid ten dollars for this 40. Wide spread, I'd look to cut my losses if that was worth only about $5, mm-hmm. or about half the premium there. And then on the upside, if I had a double, if this, that 30 wide or 30, 40 wide, excuse me, call spread were worth 20, I might look to take half off and let the rest ride here. So again, you know, I like the way you're thinking about playing Carter's take on crude. Carter, real quickly, Guy and I, you see our lines there on that OIH chart. Are they worth charting material here?
3: Yeah. Well, here's the beauty of that setup that same look, independent of the lines, is what Freeport looks like, right? It's what Alcoa looks like. So we're getting a lot of sort of autocorrelation stocks in this area of the market all firming up, having had really heavy losses preceding this recent strength. Just to end on one thing, you know, there is someone who never split his stock. Of course, it's 50,000 bucks a share. That's Mr. <laughs> Buffett. He did that for a reason all along. All the opposite things that doesn't want people to play with his stock. But he did put the B shares up.
0: Yeah, he did. And listen, Carter, I think I can speak on behalf of the entire audience and Dan Nathan. We're glad that fire drill was, in fact, just a drill. <laughs> um That clock behind you, which you turned over for the reasons that the clock had the wrong time. But you never have the wrong time, Carter Worth. You're always Johnny on the spot. And it's great to have you join us. But that's it for Market Call, Dan, on this Wednesday. I apologize before. I get ahead of myself because that's what I do. want to thank Carter Worth, who you see. I want to thank Tom Sosnoff, who you don't. I want to thank our sponsors, FactSet and TastyTrade. Thank you to Open Exchange for always powering us. We'll be back tomorrow, Dan, 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Stay alert, people. All right, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Carter.
3: Bye.